I welcome you this morning to this worship service, and I encourage you as you come to worship each week to bring your Bibles. I think it's likely a reflection of my own um, failure to teach and to exhort on this matter, but I notice that many of you don't bring Bibles each week, and I want to encourage you to do that. Your Bible ought to be uh, something that has the marks of intimacy. And it ought to be dirty. It ought to be a book that pages are falling out of. It ought to be a book that uh, you even know which side of that book as you open it up. Certain of your favorite and certain of your most uh, uh, scary texts are. Um, some of you are cooks. Mothers and wives have cookbooks that are like that. Some of you have recipes that are on cards that are so stained you can almost not read the text anymore. And uh, some of you have journals that show a great deal of use. But if I were to look at your Bibles, I wonder whether I would see that you're intimate with them and that you carry them. Now, I know it's inconvenient to carry a Bible, especially when you have to carry all manner of other things. But I encourage you to buy a Bible, to carry it, and to use it. Now, what Bible to buy? Well, the New King James is good. That's the one that Tim Wagner uses. Um, the New American Standard Bible, the updated 1995 edition, is the one that we use to preach from here. The English Standard Version is one that many of us use. Um, the New International Version is good. So there are four. Um, but the issue isn't that you choose the right version so much as that you do have a Bible, that you're intimate with it, and that you use it. Now, of course, that means that children are going to have to have their parents help them with this. And so, uh, parents, uh, exhort your children. Make sure that they have a Bible. If they're too young to buy one themselves, get them one that's convenient. The nice thing about little kids is that they can read eight- and six-point fonts. And so you can get them little tiny Bibles, and if you want to make it special to them, put their name on it. Eventually, when they graduate from high school, assuming they do, um, they will get a Bible from the elders of the church that has their name inscribed on it. But I do encourage you to have Bibles and to bring them. Also, next week, we will have, uh, we'll have again, students coming and joining us, and I encourage you to love them. Don't think about yourself and your own personal needs on Sunday morning, but think about the students. Think about them leaving their homes. Um, think of the international students. Think of those who need to be encouraged by us and then do it. This morning I ask you to turn again to the book of Galatians, the third chapter. This last week I spent more hours talking about my sermon last week than I had in many years, I think. And I... I'm in the middle of writing something to try to clear up confusion that I gave you in what I said, but I want to make a point this morning as we begin our sermon, which is that one of the things that's hard for us to realize we do, but we do do it, is it's hard for us to realize, <clears throat> now that thing could be a seduction away from carrying your Bible. I believe in having it there. <clears throat> but make sure that you have a Bible anyhow, all right? Um, one of the things that we don't realize we do, but we do it, is we interpret the Bible. And 
Somebody said last week, stick to the text, Tim. Well, when you stick to the text, sometimes you're not aware of the judgments you're making in your mind as you read. You're not aware of how you're being led by Scripture, and you're not aware of how you lead Scripture with your your noggin, your brain. And there is a lot of interpretation in Scripture. And as evangelicals and as Protestants, we often fall into the, the, the situation of believing that whatever occurs to us first, surface, has to be the right meaning of, of the Bible. And the minute that's not true, we get shaken because we believe that God has uh, ordained spiritual truths to be things that you, that you easily bring in. And God has been pleased to make us work there as he's pleased to make us work uh, in farming and in, in every other discipline. Uh, that does not mean that the Bible is uh, only for the scholarly. And in fact, that's one of the things I was trying to say last week. The scholars will tie you up in knots understanding Scripture. Uh, you need to be very careful not to f- go from thinking everything that's simplest and surface is right to going to the scholars and saying, all right, then feed me. There is a huge, huge area in between those two things. And as we go now into the next section of the book of Galatians, the reason this is important is if you look at what Paul does with Scripture. Now, how could Paul be doing things with Scripture when he's writing Scripture? That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Paul is interpreting the Old Testament. If you look at how Paul in the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, and that requires you to be aware he's doing that. We're so used to Scripture that we can just read it and forget that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is interpreting Moses, who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who in turn is recording what Abraham did and what God did with Abraham. Okay, if you look at how Paul's using that, you can very quickly uh, become confused because Paul seems to be pretty creative. And that's what we're moving into. So I will get back to that, but be aware we have moved now in the text of Galatians from Paul speaking directly to the Galatians about how they came to believe in Jesus Christ to Paul saying to them, now, not only did you come to faith, And not only was it faith and belief that God used in your life, but what about Abraham? And he moves from a direct and immediate, and this is who we are, guys, out of that back to Abraham. Now, this Lord's Day, uh, we turn again to Galatians 3, 6-9, which is the beginning of this argument about Abraham, the beginning of this argument about the Old Testament and what it teaches us. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it, belief, was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, Abraham believed God, and it, the belief, was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
So if anybody were, was inclined to disagree with this statement, they'd be reminded that this statement is not original with Paul. And how would they be reminded that? They'd be reminded by looking at their Bibles, and in many Bibles they'd see that it's in all caps. All right? There's a text change. That text change is the way we often signal it by putting it in quotes marks. All right? That text change, so that it's in all caps, indicates that it is a quotation from Scripture. And it's not there. But it is in my Bible. It's not in the Greek. All right? Nevertheless, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. So, Paul is claiming to interpret properly a statement that is made in Scripture. And you remember from last week, it's made in the book of Genesis, the first, cha- the first book of the Bible, the 15th chapter, where it explains how God has promised Abraham that he's going to have a son. That he and his wife, Sarah, are going to have a son. And that his descendants will be more than all the stars in the sky. And then it ends that statement, that section, that story, by saying, verse 6 in Genesis chapter 15, then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Do you remember when we were reading Jonah this morning, what it said was the turning point for the Ninevites. God sent Jonah to them and it said that the Ninevites what? That the Ninevites believed God. It's interesting. Then you look and if I were to ask you how the Ninevites came about to Uh, escape the judgment of God, we would all say, well, they repented. Well, yes, but where did the repentance come from? They believed God. They believed God. All right? And so, if we were to question whether or not the Apostle Paul is being faithful in treating the Old Testament story of Abraham, we would look and we'd see, well, he's quoting Genesis. So, it has to be faithful So yes, Genesis and Paul, here in the book of Galatians, both of them are saying that it was the faith of Abraham, the belief of Abraham, the trust in God of Abraham, that was the agent used by God to transfer Abraham from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, from eternal judgment to eternal bliss in heaven. Now, was this what the Jews of Paul's time believed about Abraham? That it was not Abraham's righteousness, but his faith that saved him. That God's kindness to Abraham, and through Abraham to all the Jews down through the ages, was the result of Abraham believing God and not obeying God. Was this what the Jews of the time believed about Abraham? What did the Jews at the time Paul was writing the letter to the Galatians believe concerning Abraham's good standing before the Holy God? Did they believe it was something he worked to deserve? And not God, recognizing what was fair in connection with Abraham, gave him the wages he deserved. Well, if we go back to the Jewish writings at the time Paul himself is writing, it's very easy to see why Paul would have to speak to the Gentiles so bluntly, telling them that no one is saved by works. 
But the fact was that the Jewish rabbis and scribes, in fact, had long been teaching that the good things Abraham and his descendants received from the hand of God were their just desserts, that they had earned these good things, and that God was rewarding Abraham and his descendants by giving them his blessings in this life and salvation in the life to come. And so in the Jewish apocryphal book, Sirach, it says, Abraham was a great father of many people in glory, was there none like unto him who, what? doesn't say believe God, but it says who kept the law of the Most High and was in covenant with him. He established the covenant in his flesh and when he was proved, he was found faithful. Therefore, he assured him by an oath that he would bless the nations in his seed. Very, very clear that the Jews are saying that Abraham proved his faith that Abraham worked his way up to the point where God rewarded him. That sounds good. You say, no, it doesn't. I say, yeah, it does sound good. Why does it sound good? Well, we'll get back to that. This theme of Abraham's obedience and faithfulness in resisting temptation is characteristic of the Jewish view of Abraham and the blessing he and his descendants received from the hand of God. But this is a contradiction to what Paul here writes. And according to what Paul here writes, this Jewish view of Abraham's righteousness is also contrary to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which says about Abraham standing with God that he believed God. And that his belief, his faith, his trust was counted, was reckoned, was imputed to him as righteousness. Now, in making this case, the Apostle Paul is re-emphasizing the very thing he wrote in the verses just preceding our text, where, again, commenting on the experience of the Galatians themselves of God's work in their lives, he says to them, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? But now the Apostle Paul directly engages the arguments of his Jewish opponents who were telling the Galatian Christians that they, being Gentiles, could not be true sons of Abraham until they marked their bodies as Abraham had marked his through circumcision. In other words, they were engaging in Jewish one-upmanship, and Paul was opposing it claiming that faith in God's provision of salvation through the death of Christ was the whole story and not just part of the story. They said it was something Abraham did and therefore it must be something that we do. Paul says no. It wasn't anything Abraham did. It wasn't any act of obedience he performed that produced God's blessing. But it was Abraham's faith in God's promise alone. Now, this is the same argument the Apostle Paul made in the book of Romans. He was fighting the same battle, whether salvation is by faith alone or faith plus works. And he wrote this in Romans chapter 4, if you'd turn there with me, please. Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. Romans 4, beginning with verse 2, 4, if Abraham was justified by works, so this is the argument, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does the Scripture say? Abraham, again, the same quote from Genesis 15. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see? In other words, if this is a job, you've been promised per, per certain wages, you then get the wages, you can boast. I did the work, I got the wages, you know? I've retired because I was faithful in my work, and they've decided that they're going to give me retirement benefits. And I deserve those benefits. Right? Nobody ever says... Look at the grace and mercy that I'm getting from my employer now in my retirement years. Uh-uh. Even the watch isn't a gift, really. That they give you the day you retire. The watch is really what you deserve. As a matter of fact, it's a pretty pathetic gesture. Okay? If it's a matter of Abraham doing things, then he's just getting what he deserves. All right? But... If it is not from his work, but from his belief, his faith, then his faith is credited as righteousness. And then hidden in verse 5 is that little phrase, believes in him, referring to God, who what? Who justifies the ungodly. Remember Jesus said that he did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. It doesn't say blessed are those whose good deeds have been seen. All right? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Lawless deeds like David's. And whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It's not talking there about how we, over many years, have an infusion of love for God, and that infusion of love for God causes us to increase in righteousness, so that the day comes when God looks at us, whether here in purgatory, and says, all right, you've made it. I mean, it's absolutely contrary to what the Bible is saying here. Not what Luther said, not what Calvin said, but to what the Bible says here. Is this blessing then, continuing in verse 9, on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? And now we cut to the chase, to the real issue. You know, namely, Jews, Gentiles, unclean people or clean people. All right? We cut to the issue of whether or not the Jews are God's special people because of their faith or because they've been circumcised. And he engages the issue. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Not circumcision, faith. And then verse 10, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Remember, religion and cleanliness were one and the same to the Pharisees and to the scribes. There was no difference. If you were a Jew, you were clean. You ate with a clean kitchen. You walked with a clean walk. You observed every week with a clean observation. You didn't do on the Sabbath things you shouldn't do. You had certain habits of washing, of oblations that were clean. 
The, the, the food, the very food that you bought and cooked, had to be bought and cooked in a certain way. How you observed your intimate life with your wife, it was a matter of cleanliness. Everything about the Jews is symbolized in this issue of circumcision, all right? which was the ultimate physical sign of cleanliness. All right? And what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Romans is what? Abraham was righteous not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. Now think, come on. Put yourself in the Jews' minds at the time. How would they have heard that? The, the bald-faced statement that Abraham was declared to be righteous while he was uncircumcised. And you guys, this is cataclysmic. It's this kind of stuff. It's absolutely opposed to what they believed. It's absolutely opposed to what they practiced. And it's absolutely opposed to what American church-going religion believes. It's absolutely opposed. Because, you see, you have to think. And you have to be aware you're thinking. All right? Back 2,000 years ago in Judah, to be circumcised and to observe uh, a kosher kitchen is the parallel in America today to being a civically religious Christian. It is keeping a clean house. If you go into a Dutch community, all right, in a Dutch community, you don't cut your grass on Sunday. If any of you have ever lived in a Dutch community, that's just a rule that they observe. And if there is somebody in that community who does cut their grass on Sunday, that person is known. All right? Now, I'm not saying this to beat up on, on, on those who are much, the Dutch. <laughs> I'm saying that because that to the Dutch community symbolizes what? It symbolizes a respect for the Lord's Day. So they don't cut their grass on Sunday. And every single one of our communities has certain things, certain shibboleths, certain hints, certain clues, uh, certain uh, sort of secret handshake things, all right, that, that show that we are the religious, that we are what? Circumcised. And, and our religion is a matter of giving these secret handshakes to one another so that we all look at each other and say he's clean. So I could go into ethnic, denominational community after denominational community, and there would be certain handshakes that I were to give, all of which may in fact be the product of true faith in an individual, but they're viewed by the community as the means by which they signal to each other that he's one of us. Do you understand that? Is that, is that communicating to you? Uh, maybe I have to jump out of religion to make my case. Um, hey, you see all these gangster rap things, these pictures, right? And what are all the dudes doing? They're like behind each other and they're like, you know, like, you know. And they got all these like, they got all these little like thingamabuggers, you know. Or how about Michael Jackson? He walks into court with all his family dressed in white. Okay? 
Now, we all look at that and we say, well, neither of those things is an indication of righteousness. And I say, okay, but it's an indication of something, namely, that, that you belong. I mean, everybody knew that day that if you were wearing white, walking into the court as a part of that whole uh, uh, column, that you were a Jackson, right? Okay? Now, Christians have those same things, all right? Uh, evangelical Christians have those same things. Remember a few years ago, what would Jesus do? The, the bracelet. Okay? Every single one of these things that we would do to send signals to other people in our community, in our church, in our ethnic group, in our denomination, every single one of these things that we would do is, if trusted in for our standing before God, it is exactly the equivalent of circumcision at the time that Paul is arguing. All right? Circumcision doesn't save no one. Nobody. Now, one of the things I've been dealing with in the past uh, few days as I've been thinking about this text is I've been thinking again about how seductive it is to believe that baptism saves you. And one of the things that's interesting about here is if Paul were writing this today according to how I'd like him to write it, what would he say? He wouldn't say that Circumcision is not our righteousness. What he would say is baptism isn't our righteousness because we Christians have kind of gotten it about circumcision, right? We all know that that's something you discuss with the pediatrician and read some articles on the Internet and then make a decision about, right? But when it comes to baptism, look through history how often churches and Christians have believed that baptism saves you. Does baptism save you? Does circumcision save you? Does not cutting your grass on Sunday save you? Does wearing white save you? Does having a Bible that's dirty save you? <laughs> For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteous. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And then the answer comes, verse 10, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. So that he might be the father of all who believe, what? What does it say there? Of all who believe without being circumcised. When does a man become a Christian? Is it when he places his faith in Jesus Christ or is it when he comes before the church and confesses that faith and is baptized? Or is it when he is baptized? When is a man saved? Skipping down to verse 18. It says about Abraham, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. And that wasn't a pretty contemplation. He was old. He contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. That's well over a decade older than the oldest person here. 
and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't just contemplate himself, but he contemplated his wife and her condition. And yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, if, according to the circumcision party, which was the party opposing Paul, if, according to the circumcision party, Abraham was the father of the Jews, it only made sense that even after they recognized Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah and believed in his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, they would make much of how it was the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, in fact, in which the Messiah had first been prophesied, that This Old Testament and its religion was the God-ordained predecessor to Christianity that Abraham was the father of all things Jewish and really the one in whom the story of the Jews started in Scripture and that Abraham's obedience in circumcision or obedience in leaving Ur of the Chaldees or obedience in sacrificing his son Isaac was the constitutive act through which Abraham left behind the unbelief of his ancestors and walked into the hall of faith. Now, brothers and sisters... That really is what we believe. I'm not saying that we aren't Christians. I'm just saying we are naturally predisposed to believe that about Abraham and not what I read in Romans. Okay? We believe in the perfectibility of man and we believe that the reason certain people are singled out in the Old Testament is not because of their faith in God's promise, but rather because they did certain things that were good. And if you were to count up all the natural inclinations of this room, we were all to write books about Abraham, our books would be written over and over again about how Abraham, despite his age, despite all his family being there, despite not knowing where he was going to go, he got up and he left Ur of the Chaldees. And then we would talk about all of the temptations not to go through circumcision. And then we would talk about Isaac and we would say, can you believe it? This child who was promised to him by God, he gets up while it's still early in the morning and he takes that child. And we would talk about what a wonderful act this was and and how God blessed Abraham because he, he took that son and was ready to put the dagger through him. And if we had to talk about faith, What we would talk about is the fact that all of these actions show Abram's faith and God rewarded his faith. You see what we've done there? We've taken the actions and said, all right, I can't have the actions. That's not why God saved him. But I'm going to take the faith and the faith is the good deed. You see? If we have to give up the actions, we'll then hold on to the faith and act as if it came out of the goodness of Abraham's heart and that God rewarded the faith. But that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that when Abraham looked to God, okay, when he looked to God and trusted Him, that God imputed to him righteousness. The Bible does not say that that faith was the righteousness that God accepted him on the basis of. I mean, do you see how sophisticated we are? We're constantly trying to shove it back on the person. And so it was his faith that God considered righteousness. 
But what does that do? It turns faith into a work. And yet we know from Scripture that faith is not a work, but a what? But a gift. Verse 6, Abraham believed God and it, the belief, was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith in God's promise and provision, not his obedience, was reckoned to him righteousness, right standing with God. It is the instrument by which God imputes to him the foreign righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean for us? All right, application. First, if these things are true, then we must not brag and boast. If these things are true, we must not brag and boast. We must turn our understanding of Abraham away from the direction in our pride that we naturally tend to go. We must turn away from trying to stand before the Holy God dressed in our own works, our own righteousness, and must be content to appear dressed in the righteousness of another, our Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again, we have in Scripture the theme of God's hatred of our boasting. Nothing is more contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ than the pride and the bragging and the puffed chest and the self-promotion of man, the creature. Let me read a few texts. First, Galatians 3, 6, 13 and 14. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may, what? Boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Romans 2.23, you who boast in the law through your keeping the, breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Romans 3.27 and 28, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.1-3, what then shall we say? That Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to what? To boast about. But not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts what? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's who we're to boast in. We're to boast in Jesus Christ. First, if what Paul writes is true, we must turn away from boasting, from bragging, from self-promotion, from pride, from having a higher view of ourselves than we ought to have. And those of you who have low self-esteem, there is no such thing. It's a very twisted and convoluted form of pride. Do you understand that? Don't worry. I don't have to protect any of your self-esteem. I just have to figure out different ways 
of, of, of getting through. But all of us have very high self-esteem when it comes to whether we trust ourselves or God. I was thinking about a man I know who committed suicide last night. And he was a man that we all loved. And all of a sudden, looking at this text and thinking of our tendency towards pride and bragging, I looked at his suicide and it came on me a way it never had before. What an unbelievably proud act that was for that man. Now, I don't say that to beat up on someone who is gone. But I say that to warn you. The world tells you that if you're discouraged, depressed, if you have lack of self-confidence in social situations, that all of this amounts to an unnaturally low sense of self-esteem and that you need to be built up in your estimation of yourself. And I'll tell you, it will never help. (laughs) What will help you is to be built up in your knowledge of the love of God that reaches to creatures like us. And I will tell you that low self-esteem, as the world knows, it is a very good first step to seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. It's not a liability. It's an asset. Because it turns us away from ourselves to God who made us. We must turn away from boasting and pride and self-esteem and all these things that seek to make it all about us and not about God. And second... We must turn away from trying to use reason and logic to make sense of God's plan of salvation. It is not a plan, either in Abraham's case or our own, that is intended by God to commend itself to our own human reason. Rather, it flies in the face of man's reason, man's logic, and man's wisdom. And this is always the case with the wisdom of God. It seems completely foolish to man, contrary to every one of his natural instincts. Now, of course, this is not to say that reason and logic have no place. After all, Paul is crafting a very careful case logically as he argues in the book of Galatians. But the scheme, the larger building, the whole foundation of what he's aimed at is completely contrary to human logic. It's completely contrary to what is taught in our school system. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. What will that look like, brothers and sisters? To have the wisdom of the wise destroyed. We live in Bloomington. What will it look like to have the wisdom of the wise destroyed? For I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. What would it look like on a television talk show? For the cleverness of the clever to be destroyed. It has to look like something. God will not stand wisdom of the wise, cleverness of the clever, pride of the proud, bragging of the braggart. God resists the proud. What will it look like? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... 
The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. For in the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the world, did not come to know God. Can you think of any discussion between the disciples and Jesus that reminds you of that? Where the disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, Lord, why do you what? Why do you teach in parables? And Jesus said what? So that having eyes they may not see, having ears they may not hear, else they would what? Repent. I mean, do you see this? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message priests to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, and who does the calling? God. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I want to conclude by... Uh, as I was reading and studying, all of a sudden, um, I thought of Erasmus in a book that I love called uh, Praise of Folly. And then I was thinking about uh, my reading Luther's commentary on this section, and I was thinking, isn't it fascinating? You take these two men, Erasmus and Luther, back at the time of the Reformation, and you could not have two men who are more opposed to each other. Right? Erasmus was the champion of learning in that citadel of learning, the Vatican, the Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. Erasmus is the one who was the Renaissance man. He just loved all things intellectual. Erasmus was the man who would never overstate his case. Ever, ever, ever. All right? He would never even say what I just said. All right? Erasmus was constitutionally opposed to the words ever or never or must or shall. He was always equivocating. He was always saying things in a way that would cause people to feel comfortable with him and realize he was a very reasonable man. He was sophisticated. He was an academic, okay? He was nuanced to the max. All right? And then over here, (laughs) you've got who? Gloriously awful, loud, brash, uh, potty-mouthed. What? And fat. (laughs) Martin Luther. And if you want to see the feathers flying, read the exchange between these two men on the freedom and the bondage of the will. Now, you would know, Luther, the bondage of the will, Erasmus. The freedom of the will. Do you think Erasmus has small thoughts about the will? No. He's a good academic. All right. But Erasmus wrote a book called Praise of Foolishness. And Martin Luther wrote a commentary on Galatians that the whole thing is in praise of foolishness. Both of them, when it came to describing the method that God uses to save souls were absolutely convinced and wrote books about God despising the wisdom of man and giving salvation to... Now, here's where you get in trouble, because now you have to put in to that slot 
of who God chooses to work with, actual labels, categories of people. And, and, and that's where we start to get uptight because we don't want to label who are fools. I mean, if I just leave it at fools, everybody feels okay. But Jesus didn't just leave it with fools. Both Luther and Erasmus agreed with Paul and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in saying that the gospel is given, that faith is given, that salvation is given, that heaven will be filled with a specific set of people, with particular groups of individuals, with individuals with certain attributes. And do you know who it is? Okay, I'll say it. It's fools. But it doesn't cut, does it? Do you know who Erasmus says it is? He says, children, for such is the kingdom of heaven. You remember Jesus said that. Children. Erasmus says, children, well, we all have our maternal and paternal instincts warmed up there and nobody's going to object to that. Yeah, children ought to be in heaven, you know. Okay. Children, who else? Simpletons. People who say the things that everybody else is thinking but has the sense not to say. Okay? Well, you know, there's a certain affectionate feeling towards the court jester, right? And so we're not offended yet. Do you know who Erasmus next put in line? (laughs) Go to the end of Praise of Folly. You'll find it. Who's next there? Children and simpletons and women. Can you believe that? I once got this long lecture from a seminary professor against my using that quote in a, in a sermon. Because didn't I realize that that would offend people? Well, here's the question. Do you think that Erasmus knew it would offend people? Or do you think back then no, no woman was ever offended and no husband that loved his wife was ever offended when people like Erasmus made statements like that? Come on, you guys. We're not the first generation to discover women and to love them. So Erasmus says, children and simpletons and women. And who does Luther say? Well, Luther doesn't say categories of people. The way he makes the argument is like this. Listen to Luther. Luther says, Faith in God constitutes the highest worship, the prime duty, the first obedience, and the foremost sacrifice. Faith is truly the height of wisdom, the right kind of righteousness, and the only religion. To believe in God, as Abraham did, is to be right with God, because faith honors God. Faith says to God, I believe what you say. When we pay attention to reason, God seems to propose impossible matters in the Christian creed. To reason, it seems absurd that Christ should offer his body and blood in the Lord's Supper, that the dead shall rise, that Christ, the Son of God, was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Reason shouts that all this is preposterous. Are you surprised that reason thinks little of faith? Reason thinks it's ludicrous that faith should be the foremost service any person can render unto God. Let your faith supplant reason. Now, that's radical in the same way that saying women are close to the cross of Christ. In a university community, when it says, let faith replace, supplant, usurp, kill. Oh, he hasn't said that. Well, wait a second. Let your faith supplant reason. Abraham mastered reason by faith in the word of God. Not as though reason ever yields meekly. 
It put up a fight against the faith of Abraham. Reason protested that it was absurd to think Sarah, who was 90 years old and barren by nature, should give birth to his son. But faith won the victory and routed reason, that ugly beast and enemy of God. Oh, university community. Reason, that ugly beast and enemy of God. Everyone who by faith slays reason, kills reason, the world's biggest monster renders God a real service. A better service than the religions of all races and all the drudgery of meritorious monks can render. Men fast, they pray, they watch, they suffer, they intend to appease the wrath of God and to deserve God's grace by their exertions, but there is no glory in it for God. And then he concludes, he says this, Reason is the most cruel and pestilent enemy of God. But faith kills reason. It slays that beast which the whole world and all its creatures cannot kill. Do not follow the judgment of reason that tells you that God is angry with you, but kill reason and believe in Christ. So you come here today, you come confident that God could never accept you because your life is filled with sin, and it is, and he can't. And faith says to you, Jesus has hung on the cross to pay for your sin. And your reason says, yeah, but it can't be that simple. And faith says, he has promised, and I believe. And that is Christianity. It's not not cutting your grass, it's not circumcision, it's not secret handshakes. It's not treating your wife well. You never will. But it is believing that the righteousness that God is pleased by is the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And you place your whole hope in that righteousness. It's illogical. It's absurd. It's irrational. And it is God's truth. And he is pleased to use that to trance you from death to life eternally. Let us pray.